0: Welcome to Watershed's July podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove and I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed and also the founder of Cinema Rediscovered Festival, which is what we're going to be focusing on today for this podcast. Uh, And I'm joined by a bevy of beauties. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Don't mean to struggle that before. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joined by Steph, who works alongside me in the cinema department. Hello, Steph.
1: Hey, Steph with a PH.
0: And then I'm joined by Steph with two Fs. Just the, just, one. The one. Just, oh, just, just the one. just the one f. is it? a oh, oh, yep. I thought
2: there was. A t- I thought you were a two F. Surprise, surprise! Just the one will do me. <laughs> and and Steph is from eighteen months. <laughs> and Steph is from the comms department. <laughs> yes, I am.
0: At Watershed, and also um, by Sean Wilson. Hello. F- who has written um, a book on music and film, uh, and is going to be talking to us about some of the fantastic music scores. Um, that are in the festival.
3: Can I also say also first name with an S as well? Three S's. Yes. Three S's. Going oh my god, the table. I don't I don't
0: Yeah. table. Yeah. But not, not two N's.
3: True. True. Very true.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cinema Rediscovered um, is a festival that's been going now for seven years here at Watershed um, and happening elsewhere, other venues across the city and beyond. Um, one of the other venues is Cousin Clevedon. Um, the festival came about. Um, through a couple of things actually uh, but largely through seeing films represented, uh, restored and represented in Bologna, Il Cinema Ritrovato, which is a fantastic festival that's been going for over 30 years now uh, and you really feel that the history of film is being celebrated but also preserved importantly preserved, restored, represented Um, and seeing the work that they were doing there and also seeing the audience response made me think um, it would be great to do something like this uh, here at watershed uh, in the uk Uh, but also and you'll have noticed this both staffs that we've been getting um, really great audiences for a lot of the rep programs that we've Mm -hmm. been screening over the past well since since Covid, but actually before Covid, there were there were audiences. But these are kind of seeing older films back on screen is what is kind of getting audiences um, in numbers uh, and also young audiences. We love young audiences, and they certainly love mm-hmm. seeing so these cool. kind of classic films. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them are classic, some of them are very rare as well. Uh, just thinking about Funeral Parade of Roses, which we screened mm. um, at the beginning of this year. Yeah, um, February. Yeah, and got um, great admissions. Um, and so there's 50% a, young audiences. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. and, and young audiences under 25, which is great. So it, 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 these two reasons um, really, you know, it felt like let's put the whole Il Cina Marie Trovato Bologna show on here in Bristol, which is how Cinema rediscovered discovered came along. As I say, it's in the uh, seventh year, and certainly from last year it felt, that it really connected not just with audiences, but also with um, industry uh, and also the kind of academic world as well. So there's a really nice mix in the building um, of general audiences, but more engaged uh, or specialist audiences as well. So we're going to talk about some of the strands that are happening um, at this year's festival. But but first of all, just the kind of general overview that the festival this year is Kind of informed by other ways of seeing is the general title for this year's festival. And it's come from the fact, uh, the fantastic fact, that uh, Chantel Ackerman's film, Jean Dielman, topped the poll of Sight and Sound, which is a, the 10-year poll that Sight and Sound do. And is seen as um, a kind of authoritative um, statement on taste and film. Um, and it happened last year. It's always been uh, dominated by male directors. On the whole, it's um, been dominated by Hollywood and uh, American directors, although as soon as I said that, I thought, oh, I'm for oh, Yeah, he may have made Vertigo, <laughs> but he was born in, in Lateston. What are you talking about? <laughs> but this was Chantil Ackerman, Belgian director, female director, with uh, a film which is... Uh, over three hours long and is very testing in terms of duration and in terms of subject matter and here's a film that you know topped this poll and it really does kind of represent other ways of seeing and kind of informs a lot of what this year's festival is about
3: it makes normal see really really gripping just like normality and like that reiteration of routine it's kind of strangely compelling and it just goes to show how, if you filmmakers observe like little patterns in like the fabric of like day-to-day life, they all accumulate, and all of a sudden you end up with something that's almost like an art piece and you're also mm-hmm. a film at the same time. I found it was fascinating it, actually. Had
0: you seen it uh, before? No, so,
3: no, I hadn't even wasn't even aware of it. Not had, even. And aware so the sight and
0: sound, Paul, kind of
3: brought dream, it brought it my to attention. Your, yeah. Your yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
2: I hadn't heard of it before the sight and sound. Poll actually, so well it's one of these things because I know that we've got to talk about lists. Is it like every list everywhere all All at once? And I'm really interested to read that because it's one of these things where it's like, as someone who does not have a lot of like film knowledge, well, there's always more, there's always less. I really kind of like cling to lists, and if it's like, oh, if it's at number one at the list, I'm like, oh, I guess I'll give it a try, and I'm a bit more like sympathetic to watch it, even though. I don't really like long films. I'm not very good <laughs> at long film, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. films. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: But I feel like if it's been kind of, like, lauded like that to be, like, number one at the list, then I'm like, oh, I'll give it a go, I suppose.
0: Well, I think that was the thing about the film, mm. um, Jean Dielman, was it brought it to a whole lot of people audience. that weren't aware of mm-hmm. it, a new a new audience. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was aware of it, I'd seen it um, years and years and years ago. And I hadn't really thought about it mm. much until this poll happened. And it did seem quite seismic that, that uh, well, it is actually seismic that it, that it ended up knocking Austin Wells and Hitchcock off mm-hmm. their perches. As Sean says, it is more of a, um, it's kind of in that sort of art piece feel to it. Um, and it's quite demanding of an audience. So to see the fact that when we screened it, Steph, when we screened it in January. Mm-hmm. Cinema one? Because yeah, of the we demand, yeah. M- moved it into the bigger screen, it sold out. We had about nearly 200 people there. And Steph with F, as yeah. you as you, as you, <laughs> as you, me. As you, were saying. A lot of people would come to see it because, oh, what this is, what is this all about? This is this yeah. you know, film that I've not heard about. But the film absolutely delivered. I mean, that was the thing about it. It really engaged the audience, didn't it?
1: Mm, definitely, especially in the conversations people were having afterwards and sticking around. I think that's something that's been seen a lot of the other cinemas that have also screened it because it topped the poll, which is just kind of... This kind of screening space that just wouldn't otherwise have been given.
0: Okay. Mm. Can we just say that we we um, Steph was in the process of booking <laughs> that um, before the the Sight and Sound poll was Yeah, announced. Was we, were, we were head of, we were ahead of the curve. Head <laughs> of the curve. <laughs> it's a beautiful coincidence. <laughs> but it is it is so that really struck struck us as as uh, being really interesting thing to think about. And with Cinema Rediscovered, it is a great opportunity to see films that are. Um, some of them are, are already classics, but you know a lot of films that have been restored have not been seen for you know, a number of years. They've been lost. Uh, and so to see these films back in the cinema screen, uh, and I'm a great advocate, as I would be, for seeing <laughs> films back in the cinema screen, mm-hmm. then it, it, it is a real discovery. And I, I, I love that fact of what happened with um, Jeanne Dillon when we screened it in January. Uh, we're going to screen it again at Cinema Rediscovered. And I've kind—I've of put also in the program at uh, Charlotte Wells' After Sun because it just felt to me that there's a way in which that echoes um, Jean Dielman in in some way. Uh, I, I wasn't sure how, but I just well, felt. Well, I've spoken
1: about being yeah. inspired by Ackerman's work, yeah. and there's quite a direct reference to one of Ackerman's shorts as well in the final shot of After Sun. Um, no spoilers, yeah. but
0: it's well, that's right because you, you 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 brought that to my attention I hadn't really I mean I wasn't aware of it but I sort of felt that it, 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 it was it was I felt it was interesting mm. to think of also to think of older films in dialogue with mm. sort of newer films as as well
1: and we're screening it with um after sun with uh, the Margaret Tate short portrait of Gar as well because um she's listed her as being a quite direct reference yeah. again which is interesting to see that interplay of kind of the older films in the new Mm -hmm. So
0: there are a number of strands for um, the festival this year. Um, I will run through them. They are Bristol, UNESCO, City of Film. Mm -hmm. So what we're keen to do there is to uh, celebrate the fact that Bristol is a film city under the UNESCO designation. I mean, there's a whole rich uh, filmmaking, uh, film heritage side to Bristol Then we've got Cine Kids, we're doing a couple of screenings uh, for younger audiences. We've got Down and Dirty, American DIY, Restored, which, Steph, you've put together and can talk about in a Mm -hmm. second. Mm -hmm. Look Who's Back, The Hollywood Renaissance and The Blacklist. I'll say a few words about that. Mm -hmm. Reframing Film... Uh, which is going to be a lot about the discussions you mentioned earlier about the every list everywhere mm-hmm. all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a number of opportunities to discuss yeah. um, for people to really engage with some of the themes and ideas that are on during the festival, and then restored and re- rediscovered, which has got a kind of whole range of new restorations um, that have been happening over the past kind of year, eighteen months. But Steph, do you want to just talk about the? Down and dirty American DIY restored that you've put sure. together.
1: So it's a strand of um, four films, and it's kind of looking at the um, influence of the punk and no wave movements of the late seventies, and the kind of filmmaking that then came out of those kind of music scenes in the in the eighties across um, New York and then San Francisco and LA. So it kind of looks at films with this kind of like punk aesthetic and quite low budget, lo-fi indie filmmaking um and includes the uk premiere of betty gordon's variety which was made kind of in that moment in the 80s um with i mean she was a contemporary of nan golden and there was a really kind of bursting cultural scene where they were a lot showing their films in these diy spaces and nan golden was showing her photography and slide parties and it was that really just kind of do it yourself i mean it's in the title (laughs) (laughs) the kind of aesthetic that, that rings through on that too um So we're really pleased to have that restoration here. And we've got a Zoom Q&A with the director, Betty, um, following the screening. And then we're also screening Kamikaze Hearts, the Juliette Bashore film. It's a kind of docudrama. And it looks at the porn industry of San Francisco in the 80s. And it has this really kind of novel at the time, queer focus on the porn industry. And the way it kind of flirts with fiction and reality is quite intriguing. um, And I recommend catching it. And then we've got Salvation, the Beth B film, um, again, kind of directly out of that no-wave scene. A lot of these were like musicians as well as filmmakers, um, kind of across those uh, borders. And this one stars a young Vigo Mortensen um, in one of his earliest screen roles. Um, and then we close out with Dry Longso, which is a bit later. It's from the 90s. It's directed by Colleen Smith. It was her debut um, out of film school. And it's in Oakland, and it follows a, a, a young photographer who's photographing all the Black men in her neighborhood because she feels that their lives aren't being recorded and they're cut short way too soon, and there's no record of these people. And so it kind of brings that no wave, well, the kind of lo fi indie aesthetic, but it brings it up to date a little in terms of the contemporary kind of racial politics of mm-hmm. Oakland in the 90s.
0: And one of the things that um, I was thinking about as you're talking there is that that aesthetic and that DIY kind of approach was largely made possible. Well, partly made possible by um, the fact of 16mm, and that's something that we are looking at in the festival because it's a hundred years. It's the centenary, yeah. which I was really surprised mm. by. It's the centenary of 16mm, and of course this was a, a you know a form that was slightly smaller than 35, obviously, but um, was more accessible to filmmakers and could um, people could get on and make work in a cheaper way.
1: it was lighter so it opened up all kind of new avenues for like documentary filmmaking as well
3: Well, yeah i was just to elaborate on what you guys said there because i watched the the japanese film um small slow but steady that's just been released which was shot on 16 millimeter which is uh, as i believe it's a dramatized account of a real life japanese boxer a woman who's who's profoundly deaf and i I actually watched that very recently and that was on 16 Mm. and there's something about there's something about watching sick there's a grain to it there's there's a depth um which I think is is fascinating and it gives it like a visual luster I think
0: yeah the, and there was it was certainly part of that both punk aesthetic but also the american avant-garde um that was coming out of new york and funnily, I was just thinking as well, Steph. You and I should have mentioned this up front. You and I um, interviewed Laura Mulvey, um, mm, the, great, yeah. the great, the great, <laughs> I, I, that's the list. That's the, great, one. Yeah. the great film uh, theorist um, and filmmaker, whose essay "Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema" kind of really changed um, a lot of the way in which we sort of think about uh, and watch. Uh, films and objectifications and we've got a 27 minute interview which we're going to show at the beginning of the festival but one of the things that Laura talks about and she was very much part of this um, scene uh, was when you got synchronised millimeter Mm -hmm. and you get the sound and it was the the look of it and the aesthetic and the feel of it that really informed a lot of the films that are in Steph's season but a lot of the films that Laura um, references and mentions like Michael Snow, it's a wavelength. Speaking of... Speaking maybe, of which... Um,
1: one of the events I'm most excited about is um, we're doing a 16mm event late night in the cafe bar on Friday the 28th, collaborating with Hoggy from uh, founder, one of the co-founders of the Cube um, and his Nat Cleben Film Archive project. um, And we'll be screening a selection of 16mm shorts on actual film in the cafe bar, including some shorts from Beef as well, the Bristol Experimental and Expanded Film Group. And we'll be closing it out with a screening of Michael Snow's Wavelength on 16mm, which is very rare and I'm hugely excited for.
0: It's going to be very special, that. um, I mean,
1: Laura Mulvey was (laughs) gripped when we mentioned that we were doing that. Yeah, yeah.
3: And How so was for, she to speak to, sorry Mark? How was she was she 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 was great,
0: yeah. I mean I don't know I don't know if I'd said Sean, but she but... taught me at college. Oh no way. Yeah oh. So I, I mean that was the my my route my route in was to okay. say remember yeah. me. But i have known a lot of on and off since since then and know people that worked with her at Birkbeck College and because she was such a an advocate for Jeanne Dielman uh, and she wrote the piece in Sight and Sound and also Gave a talk about it when it was announced at the South Bank, uh, and so I thought it'd be great to, you know, sort of get her um, perspective. And of course, uh, well, I sent her the list of films and what we we're doing at the festival, and she was able to talk about actually been able to, in a, in a brilliantly academic, theoretical way, able to conceptualise the whole festival. as it where the connections? Mm. Well, make the connections across sixteen mil, the sort of aesthetic. That, that was prominent then. How Jean sort of worked, but also the role, of, the important role of festivals, and she talks very much about Edinburgh um, Film Festival, which she was part of and involved in in the 70s, when it was programmed by Linda Miles, and which was always a a sort of touchstone for me in my own practice. The work mm. that Edinburgh did. So it was really nice to sort of have that echo across um, the festival. I'm not going to say how she uh, in this. At this moment, see how she conceptually <laughs> pulled it all the together, theory. because because it's, it's it was really brilliant, and we, your, we we, we've got to we've, we've yeah. got to see it in the, we've got to see it in the cinema. But it was really good to have that uh, voice, to have Laura's voice um, talking about it. because a, a lot of the films that are um, being screened are, um, and it's 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 by coincidence and serendipity that a lot of them are by women um, directors. One of the strands that we've got is film on film under the um, rediscovered section. And this is uh, working in partnership with the BFI South Bank and their recent film on film festival. Mm -hmm. Um, So these are indeed on 35mm. uh,
1: Premieres of the new prints struck by the archive. Yeah. Um, So we've got Wonder by Barbara Loden, um, Morvan Caller, the Lynn Ramsey film. Yeah. And Portrait of Jason as well.
0: Which was again part of that um, yeah. sort of scene in in New York, but which are by women directors, um, as indeed is after son Charlotte Wells. So mm-hmm. what, what you're getting is, uh, it seems to me, not not in a sort of forced way, but in a uh, this is what is happening, and these are films that have been restored. Here's, he, here are the interesting films that have been made th- that have got that different perspective and and at one moment Laura wonderfully finds herself (laughs) saying
1: talking herself around (laughs) other
0: ways of seeing which has got such a brilliant emphasis to it Um, and it really um yeah it was nice to sort of hear that reflected Mm -hmm. so that's a flavour of some I'm Mm -hmm. just going to move on to talking about Look Who's Back the Hollywood renaissance and The Blacklist which was put together by Andy Willis, who's professor of film at Salford University and also associate curator at home in Manchester. And Andy is exploring in this uh, really interesting and and, um, sometimes overlooked um, part of that moment in Hollywood when things changed from the studio system to the kind of new Hollywood uh, that we know of Spielberg. Uh, Scorsese, Lucas, um, and there was a kind of moment between the Easy Rider, uh, as it were, as a marker um, through through to that a really interesting moment when when Hollywood kind of became more independent. We've explored it in previous editions of the festival in 1971, um, the year Hollywood went independent, um, and this kind of relates to it. But it's it's cast your mind further back to the 50s, the rise of um, the threat of nuclear arms race, Russia, was the USSR was, was now the enemy after being the ally um, during the war, rise of communism and America in a state of feverish paranoia about reds under the bed um, and started looking for where this, where the the communist infiltrators were. And one of the places where they found this
1: behind the camera. Uh, was behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> was
0: who's telling those stories <laughs> in Hollywood? And it, it was there was a bit, of, there was a serious bit of grandstanding politically mm. about it. You can see, you know, you can see um, how the media has jumped on. The BBC has jumped on by left, by right. You know, as a source of. Uh, political propaganda, and at this time, it was it was Hollywood that was um, peddling these uh, commie uh, issues. Uh, the American um, government set up a, a committee, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, to search out the the communists. And of course, what you did have, because um, and during the war was, you know, communist socialism got together to, all the progressive parties got together to fight fascism. But, and people were members of the communist party, mm-hmm. they would have signed up. They would, but what happened was that this uh, witch hunt, as it was, and of course, Arthur Miller famously wrote The Crucible, which is a kind of partly a metaphor for this. But, um, that people's political affiliations was put under the microscope, and a number of people within Hollywood... And you had to um, bend to the committee as well, because if you didn't, then you was, that was seen as you were a communist then. So there was no there was no way out. And what a number of people did, it caused, uh, I mean, all sorts of trauma within the film industry, which, you know, still ripples. Um, but uh, some people who testified... Gave names, and of course, that caused all sorts of problems. Some people testified and didn't give names and then were subsequently blacklisted um, and thrown out, well, put in jail. But some people knew what was going to happen and fled the country uh, and got out. So there was a whole diaspora, as it were, of these creative, of Hollywood creatives that went out. Uh, and, And what this season does is pick it back up, where, because, well, what happened to these? directors and these filmmakers and these writers etc mm-hmm. and some of them started coming back in the 60s i mean i guess Spartacus and, and the um, the Otto Preminger film that i can't remember the name of was the sort of that was the, the the wall and the dam dam bursting that you know it, it, the, it was over the blacklist was over but you know during that time there was there were people still under the blacklist that were working in hollywood and this these films that andy's put together are Some of them are quite well-known films like MASH, um, the Robert Altman film, like Midnight Midnight Cowboy by John Schlesinger. These films were written by um, some of the people that were, as I said, were in that blacklist, like Ring Ladner Jr., Waldo Salt. These writers, had um, some of them had gone to Britain and, and I don't know if anybody around this table remembers or knows, but the Robin Hood TV series.
1: Well, yeah. I remember the 2006 one. Yeah, when yeah this is a, <laughs> a slightly
0: older one. I, don't, <laughs> I, 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 hear, I hear tell of it, but it was in the late 50s, early 60s, I think, on television. And was writing for these um, TV series, mm-hmm. so still keeping their hand in. But it was only when um, the political climate changed that they went back. Um, the films in the season are... Uptight, uh, Tell Them Willie Boy is Here, Shampoo, Claudine, Mash, Midnight Cowboy, and the premiere of the restoration of Serpico. And these are all films which are dealing with kind of social and political issues, either against the war that was happening in Vietnam or about black experience. Or about a kind of critique of what was happening politically in America, and of course, what what was ha- what had happened was that these these creatives that had been blacklisted still obviously held their progressive politics came back. Hollywood had changed, and here they were contributing to this new wave of in Hollywood in the 60s. So there's a really great broad range, and one of the things that strikes me in having you here, Sean, is that the use of music, of course, because what you also had was in uh, America at the time was a great explosion of music in the 60s which obviously found their way, probably the, the most famous one out of is Midnight Cowboy and Harry Nelson and that track being used that everybody will remember
1: Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they saying only the echoes of my mind. But well,
3: it's actually really fascinating hearing about you use that word like diaspora um there because film music weaves in and out of all of these various strands when you mentioned the um the HUAC committee there, the, the blacklist. One of the one of the people that was famously blacklisted was um Elmer Bernstein, the film composer, who was then in the throes of his career. And he was relegated to scoring, polling, like B-movies like Robot Monster. And then and not long after, about three or four years after, he rose back up and started scoring films like The Ten Commandments again. And then he asserted himself as one of the great Hollywood film composers. So it's fascinating how it, it that all of these different strands do affect people in different areas of the, of the industry. But yeah, I think that the, the late 60s, I mean, you mentioned Midnight Cowboy there, but obviously um, films like Easy Rider, they imploded the atom on how music was used in films because filmmakers didn't have to use non-diegetic orchestral scores. In fact, it was more about the sense that counterculture revolution and audiences had changed and the appetite in the atmosphere in America had changed and it was more about how do we use pop music, how do we use needle drops, how do we use rock music and very often when you get into the 70s, a lot of films didn't use any music at all. A lot of films were very quiet and a lot of ambience. Me think of films like um, *The Conversation*, the Francis Ford Coppola film, which which does have a score in it by David Shire, but it's very, it's very, very quiet, and it's very much about looping sound. And then, and then after that period, you get the new Hollywood, you get Spielberg, you get Lucas, who then collaborate with with John Williams. And um, I always think it's interesting how the history of music weaves in and out of all, all of these things.
0: What one of the um, interesting things that I came reminded of by seeing MASH, Robert Altman's MASH, which is the kind of um, real critique uh, of what was happening um, in Vietnam, a real anti-war film. Um, but the it, people might remember the score to it, Suicide is Painless, was the sort of famous um, song that was used. Um, and the story goes that Altman... Wanted knew that exactly those changes that were happening in Hollywood, and wanted a kind of pop song, the catchy tune that was that could be played, uh, you know, through the film, and probably didn't want to pay royalties to, you know, <laughs> so asked his son, um, who's teenage young teenage son, um, if he fancied writing the song, and I think wrote it in five minutes. <laughs> The, the words, and then you know, the, I'm not quite sure how the music came about, but whether he wrote the music as well, uh, and went on to earn his son more money than the film itself. <laughs>
3: Never let it be said that parents don't like that for their kids. So, there's a, there's
1: a little fact for you.
2: Suicide is painless, Suicide. it brings on many changes.
1: If
0: I please. Um, but there's an opportunity to talk to Andy about In more depth about the season He's going to be here, he'll be introducing the screenings But also he'll be um, giving a talk about the background And you can find out a bit more about um, The various creatives that are involved in these films Speaking of scores we're opening the festival with sofia coppola's debut film the virgin suicides sean you must know the score for that
3: yeah the the soundtrack by air which is um I, we were saying this off mic which i think generated at least one chart topping hit from air we were saying it put air on on the map but the idea of using a pre-existing pop group to communicate the relevance of the film to that audience as opposed to using an orchestral score, which is this, as, as I said, that that's a technique that goes right the way back to the 60s and even before that, the 50s, with, with jazz and Blackboard Jungle, the idea of you get someone, a, a group or an artist who has cachet with, with an audience who, whom you're trying to attract mm. and that it almost kind of bypasses the intellect, it goes through the gut and that's a really, really effective way of using they, music. They, they Barbie ad- album. <laughs> <The> Barbie <laughs> yes. album for me. I'm really excited. <laughs> uh-huh. that, that, that is a yeah. film that's screening whilst
2: Cinema Rediscovered is happening. It's not Barbie vs Oppenheimer here, it's Barbie versus Cinema Rediscovered. <laughs> no, no, contest. rediscovered. <laughs> no, no contest. No contest.
0: No <laughs> contest. But talking to what you're saying there, Sean, about um, the soundtrack, I, I gather that um, Sofia Coppola you, you came across the uh, air album, before it was actually anything significant and they weren't they weren't known and it was actually the film that was as much about making air a kind of popular popularizing them or bringing them to that attention and what sort of seemed to happen with the film is that both things come together which is you know that audience the young adolescent audience a younger age group what the film's about and also the music and it just it seems to have touched some zeitgeist at that time which is is has made them all successful
3: it is i suppose good question with films is, is is the tail wagging the dog you know what what where where does something come does does the soundtrack kind of boost the film does the film then boost the soundtrack and it all it all becomes really i think really cyclical and 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 really interesting you think of um um, Blackboard Jungle, as I said earlier, like Rock Around the Clock, um, Bill Haley and, and the Comets, which is only used for, I think, I think over the opening credits and maybe once elsewhere, but it boosted the profile of film, and then the film boosted the profile of the song e- exponentially, and it all they all feed off each other. I always think that's really interesting when that happens with with movies.
1: That's something movie have been looking at, not to list another podcast in our <laughs> podcast, but in their recent <laughs> season, um, they point out the same kind of thing with Donnie Darko.
3: Yes. Yeah, so that's a great good. soundtrack, yeah, the Mad World. Yeah, yeah they used of the Mad World, yeah. yeah. It's,
1: it's just... fine because maybe you're a sponsor of the festival, so... <laughs> we <love>
3: you, <laughs> thank, thank you, for, thank thank you for getting that in. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so the, the Other Strand is a collection of new restorations and you know films that people uh, will hopefully rediscover. Are there particular films in that section that people are looking forward to? Particularly oh, interested in.
1: Very excited for Jean Eustache's The Mother and the Whore. Again, not often mm. screened, partly because it wasn't available for a while, but also it's very long runtime. It's another mm. three and a half hour plus.
2: <laughs> my favourite.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure you'll be coming with me to that mm-hmm. one. But it's sold really well. We've already sold out one screening, so we've added an additional one um, a few days later. Um, that would be my mm. topic.
2: Oh, Virgin Suicide, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I was trying to remember how I came across virgin suicides for the first time and i think it was on tumblr yeah um, it was all over there yeah There's and it was who was pretty it little gifts yeah tavi gevinson who i think she was like one of the youngest like fashion editors or something she was like 13 or something and had already been like included in like vogue and stuff like that and she was very much like a curator of those kind of like aesthetic film gifts which i hadn't like never seen before and also because that what was it virgin suicides it was um david lynch with the picket fence blue velvet, blue velvet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah blue velvet and that was kind of like that's my memory of that time and therefore i need to finally watch the film which i've seen many many screen grabs lot. and many many gifts for it's <laughs> so you've like not you not seen virgin suicide no i'm a virgin suicides virgin one might say
1: lovely tweets nevertheless <laughs>
2: <laughs> also just like the, all the film stills from it are just like yeah
1: they did some great stills photography. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, um, with the variety stills that we've had through as well because they were shot yeah. by Nan Golden at the time. It's when they like treat the stills photography as an actual enterprise in itself. Well, you know? the,
0: the mm-hmm. other thing about Virgin Suicide is it was shot by Ed Lachman, yeah. who's mm. he, 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 one of the great cinematographers who's worked with Todd Haynes and he's a photographer as well. And, it, it you know, his what he brought to it was that sort of visual style mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is just... It is so, it's so stylish. Yeah, there, there it, is, it, it just looks, looks so repurposed. Cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just looks, looks so cool. And what, what he talks about is how he really loves working... He, there's an interview with him and Sofia Coppola, I think, when the restoration was screened in the States, and he was saying that it was really good working with a first-time director. He, he likes that because... They, they've they not been through the mill mm. <laughs> and so they're more open to the possibilities yeah. um, of doing stuff and he just enjoys the freedom the creative freedom and you can really see him responding to it because of the, the images that he's created
2: mm-hmm. I think just for me for like just being able to promote the films it's just really nice to have like a full archive and also just like professional pictures because there is a difference yeah. from a marketing perspective that a lot of Uh, new films, they just send you like screen grabs from the film. But because they've been treated for cinema, they don't actually render well on the website. No, exactly. Whereas if they do, and you know, before it was that easy to get screen grabs, they they would do like proper shoots. And I'm an
3: advocate for proper promotional shoots for your films. So many film stills now are really dreary. And it's really surprising. Like you you want me to sell your film it's mm-hmm. like send me some you know, like you're saying that like, the ones for the Virgin Suicides are genuinely artistic because it's a genuinely artistic project yeah. but at least that's mirrored in the marketing material mm-hmm. and at least they did the job on it yeah.
0: yeah Sean is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to in that section
3: well actually not to piggyback off what you've said Go Steph, but I'm actually I've never seen the Virgin Suicides mm. on big screen before and I just think that Sphere Coupler is such a singular director mm and her use of music, I mean her use of music is always fascinating in her other films as well, but I think I remember the use of the air music Mm. in this is really striking, just really ethereal and it's almost like, (laughs) strikes like a catchy but apocalyptic chord, (laughs) which Mm. is like a really weird combination, but it makes the film more memorable in a way I think.
0: Great. Couple of highlights yep. for me, a couple of films mm. that we're screening. Steph, you mentioned earlier in your season, Salvation, and then in this strand restored door, and rediscovered, restored and rediscovered <laughs> is life is cheap but toilet paper is expensive. Both of those films, uh, I've been in the business long enough. Uh, I opened uh, them in the cinema in Plymouth that I was programming oh, wow. uh, when that they were uh, back in the day when they were released. When yeah, I guess those kinds of independent American films had significant releases. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I seem to remember they opened them on date as well. But were, yeah, it was just, I remember them from that time and it will be interesting um, seeing them again back in the cinema screen and the impact, whether the impact that they had then is is similar to date. Mm-hmm. I certainly think that they are two of the most sort of striking American films. The Wayne Wang one is really... Great reflection on him as an uh, Asian American who goes back to Hong Kong to sort of retrace um, his roots in a, a kind of very godard like type uh, film. Uh, which was a which was a kind of breath of fresh air when it came out at the time. And then Beth B's um Salvation was, was just was just this kind of Some incredible wild. wild. Kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. But the the films that I'm particularly looking forward to seeing on the cinema screen during cinema rediscovered a uh, premiere of the Hungarian film Twilight. Not,
1: not mm. the vampire uh, one.
0: Not the vampire one, uh, the vampire <laughs> one <wish>. but Georgi <laughs> Feher's um, Twilight from 1990, which was shown at the Berlin Film Festival this year mm. in its um, restored form. It's not been available to be seen really since its release, and it's an, an extraordinary film. It's based on a book by the Swiss author Friedrich Durenmatt, and the book is called The Pledge, the Requiem for the Crime Novel, uh, written in the 50s, I think. And there's a whole really, really interesting background to his novel, which was originally a film script, which was then, it's been made a number of times, actually. most famously is The Pledge. By directed by Sean Penn with Jack, oh, Jack, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's
3: a great film and yeah.
0: that so that's that is the template and that is the story that um, Twilight is based is also based on this Hungarian film and I think it got caught in copyright uh, issues around the relationship with the pledge and it's 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 just not been widely available at all it's the 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 novel is about a detective who's just about to leave the force There's a kind of very traditional genre <laughs> based to it. it's about to leave the force gets called um, into one last case which is the murder of a young girl in a forest and he t- he's the the detective is the the one who says to the parents about the death of the daughter he's doing because nobody else really wants to do it because it's such a tight Net community, he does it, and the mother makes him say that he will catch the killer and kind of pledges to to kill, which is where the pledge comes from. And then, of course, there's then been a number of uh, a couple of murders, a serial killer, etc. Uh, but it becomes about the detective's obsession almost, and whether there is a killer or whether it's a kind of obsessiveness. Um, but the Hungarian version, I think well, it does go really into the darkness a lot more than Sean Penn does, which he did in The Pledge, if you watch it, it was made by Warner Brothers, this big studio, but it's not, absolutely not, uh, a a happy ending (laughs) film. Um, Whereas the... The Hungarian version goes much more into that darkness. the The director of it is, you know, collaborated with Bela Tarr, mm-hmm. um, the great Hungarian director. So you can you, you can you can tell they can tell the direction of travel that he's going to go. But there's a really interesting backstory, and I'll talk a bit more about that when I introduce the film, mm-hmm. as well. And then the other big revelation for me, discovery. Indeed.
1: Mm. 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 No, it's a discovery. Oh, this one's awesome. a discovery. Okay. Is
0: is Bushman that we're closing the festival with, directed mm-hmm. by David Shekell, and it it is one of these things that you, you film you come across. you go, why didn't I know about this? Mm. It's it was filmed in the late 60s in the West Coast of America. It follows a Nigerian student who's come to America to both teach and also do a master's at a university. And it's this amazing view of America at that time, which, of course, was civil rights, um, you know, racism, death of uh, Martin Luther King, you know, all that turmoil that was going on in America at the time. And here, this Nigerian student, um, and you see footage, you know, it flits between West Coast America and Nigeria. So y- you get this incredible look at America through Nigerian Eyes, uh, and it's it was set up as a drama, but actually becomes a documentary because uh, oh, I won't say too much, but you you you'll, you'll see what happens to this uh, black Nigerian uh, in America at that time, and it seems to me to sort of speak to the work of Charles Burnett. Even I was thinking about Jim Jarmusch's Lost in Paradise, but so I'm doing a bit of research as to whether or not you know this film. Who saw it? How it was released, etc. But it's it's one of these. I describe it as one of these. Like when we screened Melvin Van Peebles' story of the three day pass a couple of years back, it's like it makes you rethink what you thought you knew about film at that mm. at, you know at that time. Mm-hmm. And it's like a bit of the jigsaw puzzle that is film history that's not quite clear. And you say, "Oh, put another little bit there," you know. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that.
1: Did Good. you see
0: it at Il Cinema Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'd seen it on the screener. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I, I saw it in um, Cinema Retrovato, which reminds me, I also saw there the Stanley Kubrick. We haven't mentioned Stanley oh, yeah, Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. Opening night. Stanley yeah. Kubrick, opening night. Stanley Kubrick's debut film, following on from Sofia Coppola's debut film, mm-hmm. Fear and Desire, which... He was twenty-three, I think,
2: twenty-four
0: I years sorry, old when we'll he made it. Ackerman. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wonder what age Sofia Coppola was then with Virgin Suicides to be known. But um, what is interesting about it is, it's Kubrick is—you know—as soon as you say Stanley Kubrick, you think obviously of the these masterpieces, um, great cinema. Um, Two thousand and one. Two thousand and one.
3: The, the Spartacus. Path of Glory, that's my favourite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, the
0: Shining. But you, you think about the perfectionism and yeah. the, the craft and the detail. This is his first film shown at the Venice Film Festival. Um, it was 82 minutes long. It was shown in America. It didn't get a good response. He didn't like the response.
1: He kind of disowned he, it, he, right? he
0: cut oh. it. He cut, he cut, cut out, it. And he cut out all the philosophising, as he said, <laughs> um, which was actually. To my view, what makes it interesting, um, otherwise it would be, as somebody said, like an episode of the Twilight Zone, um, yes. uh-huh. some, something along those <laughs> okay. lines. But you can see the what's what's um, uh, fascinating about it from the cinema we discovered is that you see the the hands of, of Kubrick, mm. you can see the beginnings of, and he's coming from a photography background and some of the framing, some of the close-ups are just um, really quite extraordinary, but it's really fascinating to see this kind of early piece of cinema from Kubrick.
3: I'm really excited about that personally. One, one, one other one that I'm really excited about, particularly from the soundtrack point of view, but also because I think it showcases a really underrated performance is Eve's bio. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got, because I think Samuel L. Jackson is so, so good in that and that's a really overlooked performance from, from him and it shows he can do subtlety. He can, he can do subtlety, when he, but Terence Blanchard's jazzy score that owes itself to all those old 1950s traditions. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. Ter- Terence is a brilliant artist and, yeah, that'll be really interesting to hear that, I think. As you can tell, there mm-hmm. is a lot happening at cinema rediscovered
0: which takes place in and around bristol from the 26th to 30th of july if you go to watershed.co.uk forward slash cr23 you'll find out all the information and you can get yourself tickets and
2: we hope to see you in the cinema soon yeah see you soon i'm gonna be there you're gonna be there hey you're gonna be there i will and (laughs) you're gonna be there as well we'll all be there (laughs) Thank you all. Thank you.
1: Thanks to Bernie as well for recording.
2: Thank you, Bernie.